Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Today's podcast concerns the continuing severe drought and current water rights delineation in California. On January 1, 2013, AB 685, commonly known as the Human Right to Water, became state law as addition 106.3 to the Water Code, recognizing the human right to safe, clean, affordable, and accessible water adequate for human consumption, cooking, and sanitary purposes. With the passage of this law, California became the first US state to recognize this right. This follows the rights development in international law. In November 2002, the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights adopted General Comment No. 15, which states that the right to water is indispensable for human dignity and defined the right to water as the right to sufficient, safe, acceptable, physically accessible and affordable water for personal and domestic use. The Human Rights Council has affirmed this right in several resolutions, including Resolution 722 in March 2008, as has the UN General Assembly under its Resolution 64292 on July 28, 2010. It's an express constitutional right under the constitutions of numerous states, including Uruguay and South Africa, while others have an implicit constitutional right. For instance, India's Supreme Court has recognized that the express constitutional right to life implicitly includes the right to water. While this is a step in the right direction, on both the international and state levels, the right sadly remains without teeth. Recently, on February 16, 2016, the California State Water Resources Control Board adopted the human right to water as a core value to direct the State Water Board's implementation of the law, but we continue to be left with a mere policy directive with no obligation on the part of the state to effectuate the right as the effects of the drought worsen. As more than a million people in California lack access to clean and safe water and must resort to bottled water for their drinking, cooking and sanitary needs, we have multinational corporations bottling water for sale and water users continue to operate under a water rights system that may not be sustainable. With me today to discuss these issues and more is Courtney Davis, a San Francisco-based attorney practicing water law, including handling regulatory compliance, permits and basin management planning. Hi, Courtney. Welcome to Gravity. Hi. So let's talk about the current drought here. It's been going on for quite a number of years and it doesn't seem to be dissipating. Uh, How bad is it? It's pretty bad. It's definitely considered the worst drought on record. Um, And it certainly pushed, I think, you know, people at the local level, um, water users and also policymakers to think hard about our water allocation system. Um, and what we need to do to figure out the problem, address it, and also looking forward and understanding this may become a longer-term thing or will happen more frequently, how we can mitigate some of the damage that can result when we haven't put in place the infrastructure and don't have the regulatory tools to make sure that everybody, you know, is getting the water that they need. So let's talk about the regulatory tools and water law in general in California. So before any restrictions, how does California as a state delineate water rights? So California is what's called a hybrid state, meaning that it has both the riparian rights doctrine and the prior appropriation doctrine. And just to briefly summarize what those are, a riparian right is one that uh, a property that is adjacent and abuts a water course has a water right to use water from that stream on their property um, for the reasonable and beneficial uses on the property. So 
that says anybody who touches a stream has a water right. The prior appropriation doctrine says it's more focused on use. Whoever uses the water gains a right to it. So in some states, they only have the riparian rights doctrine, and in other states, they only have the prior appropriation doctrine, but California has both. So there is a version of water right called a riparian right, and those are folks who own property abutting a stream. But then there's also um, a set of appropriative rights that have to do with whether you've made use of the water, um, particularly before 1914, when you have a pre-1914 right. That right was established simply by using the water. And then post-1914, the State Water Resources Control Board um, has basically established a permitting uh, scheme where you go to the state and request a water rights permit to use water under an appropriative right. Biggest difference with the appropriative right is that that water can be used off of a riparian parcel. So, you know, you can go to a property on the stream, take water off, and you can bring it 50 miles away and use it there and exercise your appropriative right if you have a permit or have otherwise established a water right um, and under the pre-1914 system. And how would one go about getting the permit? Do you have to prove that it won't have any environmental impact or uh, what, what do you have to prove to be able to get the water right permit currently? The State Water Resource Controller, when you file an application, then asks the question um, about a water availability analysis. And so that analysis effectively is proving, A, that there's water available, meaning when all the other folks with rights on that water course have, whether when their needs are met, is there anything left over to be appropriated? Then the other issue is, is there damage to fish and wildlife that will result if you take this water out of the stream? So they're looking at what are called in-stream flows, which is what are the flows needed in the stream to support fish and wildlife, and will your issuance of a permit to you um, take water away from those resources uh, in such a way that they're going to be harmed and, and suffer material injury. So there is both a balancing of, of is there enough water for other right holders and is there enough water for fish and wildlife. And how long does it generally take for the government to review this process and if they provide the permit, uh, decide that there is enough water available and it won't cut and you won't harm the fish and other species in the water? Typically, the determiner of how long that process takes has to do with the protests that are filed. So when you file a notice or file an application, notice is given of that application um, to people in the area. It also is given to state agencies, uh, including the resources agency, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. You often get protests from environmental organizations that claim harm to the um, water course, and you often get the Department of Fish and Wildlife saying, you know, this has potential to harm impact, uh, harm fish and wildlife. And in those instances, um, the applicant has to go to the protesters and try to resolve those protests and effectively get them dismissed or come to some um, negotiate and come to some point where they can kind of say, okay, well, maybe our, we'll change the scope of our application to reflect the need to leave water in the stream or to take a smaller amount than we're asking um, and, and get to the final permit issuance process. Now, some permits literally can last decades and not be issued because those issues are unresolvable or there's not progress or there's something else going on in the stream system that's just making it hard to ultimately bring that to conclusion. So 
in my experience, an easy water right, which I don't know that there are any left because we've so um, developed the water resources to date. There isn't necessarily a lot of water out there. It might take a year or two. But as I said, there are permits that I know of that were filed in 1998 and to this day have not yet been um, acted upon or granted. And that is to do, though, with more the vigilance of the communities affected and NGOs that are protesting rather than the government being more vigilant. Um, Yes, although, you know, to give the government agencies, you know, a, a little bit of credit, I think they take very seriously those protests. They always, you know, when you file an application, you have to send it to the Department of Fish and Wildlife who then steps in and and often plays a very central role in it. So I wouldn't say that the State Water Resources Control Board is necessarily pushing that agenda, but I do think the Department of Fish and Wildlife is is vigilant about ensuring fish and wildlife are protected when we think about whether it's appropriate to grant a water right. So before we were talking about the riparian and the uh, appropriative rights, now, is that for, does that include all water in California, including groundwater use? So, no. Surface, I was talking about surface water. So, surface water has two components, riparian and appropriative. However, um, groundwater is similar. So, the biggest difference is with groundwater, instead of a riparian right, you have what's called an overlying right. And it's analogous to a riparian right in that if you are a landowner of a piece of land over a water supply, over a groundwater basin, you have the right to stick your well in and pump up water and use it um, for your overlying needs. Um, use is always governed by the reasonable and beneficial use restriction under Article 10, Section 2 of the California Constitution. But you are allowed to use the water you need to meet your needs on that property, and that is a part and parcel of the property. Um, The overlying right runs along with the land ownership. So when you then switch and take that water and use it outside of the overlying parcel, so for example, you bring it, like I said, 50 miles away and you use it like for a city, or you bottle it, or you put it in a tanker truck and drive it over somewhere and fill someone's pond um, off the off the overlying parcel, then you're exercising an appropriative right. So you, you have overlying and appropriative rights with respect to groundwater. Um, the difference is there is not a permitting system in California for groundwater rights. The biggest developments on that front, however, are the in September 2014, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was uh, enacted um, after Governor Brown signed it, and it puts together a legal framework about how to sustainably manage our groundwater basins and the process and um, regulatory tools by which we do that. And that is, there's a whole bunch of layers there, and that process is rolling out. But effectively, it says we're going to form these groundwater sustainability agencies who will oversee individual basins and will come up with a plan and implement the plan to ensure that um, there is not harm to the basin, to ensure that annual withdrawals are not um, significantly exceeding uh, the recharge that you get through um, rain or the other sources of water that come in. One of the big challenges in water rights is that if you ask a lawyer, we have to say we need to draw the line between surface water and groundwater because, as I mentioned, Surface water is um, post-1914 appropriative rights in surface water are regulated by the State Water Resources Control Board, and so you have to get a permit. But if you're dealing with the groundwater source, you're not required to get a permit. 
So legally, we have to try to separate the two out so we understand the jurisdiction or not of the state water board. Um, but if you talk to hydrogeologists, they get very frustrated because they say it's a construct. Almost all surface water um, bodies uh, known and defined channels are are interconnected in some way to groundwater. And so it's a little bit false to say, oh, it's a surface water supply versus a groundwater supply. So we hear that a lot from the uh, engineers who say we're, we're, we're trying to draw lines where none can truly be drawn. But isn't groundwater more vulnerable in the sense that when you have a huge aquifer that it basically has taken millions of years to produce that water? And if we look at it as a renewable resource, we're looking at it incorrectly because if it, you know, if it took millions of years to get to that state, you know, if we deplete it, we're going to have to wait with bated breath for millions of years to get it back to uh, the same state. So it seems that we should have stronger restrictions and that it shouldn't be private when we look at groundwater because otherwise NGOs and communities won't know how much the groundwater is being depleted, whether it's being eutrophied, whether it's being polluted, and it, it's such a vulnerable water source. I think that that's right. I think that many people are happy to see some, even though it's not technically regulation, because, by the way, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, or SIGMA, is not intended to define rights. It's not intended to change rights, and that was stated, actually, in the legislation, but it is intended to provide a, a framework to achieve what's called a sustainability goal, um, exactly for the reasons you described meaning it, it is now acknowledged we can't just continue to withdraw money from a piggy bank without thinking about how much money is going in, um, money being recharged. And so when you have long-term overdraft, which is, again, where you have withdrawals of water significantly exceeding the amount of recharge that comes in on an annual basis, you do get a gradual and often sometimes dramatic and, and fast lowering of the groundwater table, um, which makes it hard for anybody to get access to water. But certainly I think um, small and disadvantaged communities have larger challenges because when their wells run dry, they don't necessarily um, have the means or the money to, you know, drill a deeper well or, you know, fight off litigation about use of water and things like that. So I think that that's right. And I do think it is a good development that we are attempting to um, put some restrictions on groundwater use and, and frankly, do one thing that hasn't been done in a long time, which is require people to report how much water they're using. That is not something that, that happens today. But under the groundwater sustainability plans that will be rolled out, one of the measures likely to be implemented is annual reporting. Um, and those agencies will have the authority to basically restrict pumping so that we we don't have some of these issues. Um, you know, that doesn't alleviate the kind of public policy issues about access to water completely, but it is certainly a step in the right direction um, for California to better understand what the resource is, how it's being used, and there are to be some tools to restrict water use in a way that is going to make sure it's there in the future and not just literally emptying the bathtub so that we've lost the source altogether 
Right. I think it's very important, particularly when we have a drought and the surface water is being depleted. It seems that people, you know, in such a time that have access to groundwater might be more tempted to use groundwater when their surface water is depleted. And, and that's actually the worst thing that they can do. Um, when we need to conserve our water sources. But just going back to what you said, so we will now be looking at how much groundwater is being used, which will come into effect soon. However, do you think that people, that property owners that are using this groundwater will, I mean, are we trusting them to say exactly how much water they're using? And is there a process by which the government will verify that this is how they're using the water? I don't know that I know the answer to that. You know, typically one of the things that I, I imagine will be required under the groundwater sustainability plans is the um, requirement to install a meter to meter it. So I do not know and I cannot say if there will be a process by which under these individual groundwater sustainability plans, which again will be on a basin by basin basis. This is not the state doing these for all of these these are the local agencies that step up to the plate, um, usually one or more local agencies, and say, hey, we want to serve as the groundwater sustainability agency here. And it kind of puts together the rules and regulations and the tools in its toolkit to try to get a hold on the groundwater situation and ensure sustainability going forward. So I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I'd like to think everyone wrote before, honestly, but that's certainly an issue. And that will have to be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. Um, through those groundwater sustainability plans. I don't believe there's a role for the, the State Water Resources Control Board um, or the Department of Water Resources to step in and play that role, but, but you know, that's certainly a possibility, I guess, in the future. Okay, so let's move on to the restrictions that the state and certain councils have been imposing since the drought. For instance, everyone that goes to a restaurant could see that, you know, you have to ask for water and um, any refills because of the drought. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a step in the right direction, but considering that residential use is so minor compared to, say, the use of agriculture, how are we, as a state, uh, restricting the water guzzlers right now in, in the time of drought? So we've talked about the surface water rights scheme, and so one thing that happens under that is the state water board issues what are called curtailment orders and says, you have a water right dated, let's say, you know, December 1, 1974. And anybody who diverts, who has a priority right as that date or later has to stop taking water because today there's just not enough water in the system to meet all of the needs. So that is one way that all users, regardless of their claim of right, um, can be curtailed and told, you are not allowed to take water. On the groundwater front, because of the things I described, there isn't really a tool to say, you know, you can't use groundwater. What that has led to, particularly in the agricultural context, and particularly in the Central Valley, in the San Joaquin Valley, is very dramatic uh, declines in the volume of water in the groundwater basement basin. And the state really hasn't done a lot. The orders that you are discussing have to do with the State Water Board um, issuing orders to require urban water suppliers largely. And then also, again, like you said, some restaurants and hotels to say, you know, you can't offer water and you have to put a sign out that says 
people have to elect to have their sheets laundered and things like that. And with respect to urban water suppliers, they have been asked to cut back by a certain percentage. Um, what those restrictions look like are changing. Um, they've actually just made a very dramatic change in those conservation regulations saying, we're going to let individual water suppliers uh, figure out whether they have enough water for the next three years, um, improve to what they have at source. And if they do that, then they get to decide what their conservation regulations are. If the drought continues a few more years, we're going to revisit that and maybe make some changes. Um, I think your one of your questions really is, well, why isn't agriculture being asked to participate? And I can't answer that question. Um, politics certainly plays a role in it. Um, I think a lot of people feel that there is a significant economic benefit to the activities of agriculture, and that is one of the reasons. Um, I think they have a strong lobby that can help on the political front um, to protect some of those rights. Some farmers grow high-value crops and that, that use a lot of water or a little water, and so maybe there's an argument that those are better, and then there's people who grow low-value crops that take a lot of water. And so the question is, is is the water use worth it for whatever value that produces? You know, that's a public policy question. Um, it's not easy to answer. There is a lot of tension um, between not so much urban agriculture, actually. Uh, I think some urban users and water districts are, you know, unhappy about the fact that they've been asked to cut back. But on the other hand, some of the ag community voluntarily cut back water supplies last year um, in order to avoid further restrictions. And, you know, that went well and it was well received, but that didn't necessarily make people happy. It is frankly not an easy question to answer. Um, and making it even more complicated is the concerns about environmental um, health. And one of the biggest things that has been a problem for agriculture in our state is the use of the state water project and the Central Valley project which in general kind of take water from the, the north and northeastern parts of the state and bring it down to the Central Valley and also send some of that water down south to Southern California for um, municipal supply. But in the middle of all this is the Delta, um, a sensitive ecosystem that supports lots of fish and wildlife, in particular one fish, the Delta smelt. And there have been a lot of restrictions imposed um, about how that water moves through the delta in order to protect fish and really has you know, raised agriculture's hackles about it because they believe um, we're prioritizing fish over people. And that is one of the kind of biggest debates that continues to, to rage on um, in the state and, I, and may for a long time yet. So, so let's talk about this north-south on or, or north against the Central Valley and, and the south issue. So there's there's more water coming from the north and uh, the government I know is proposing a few projects that may be insidiously termed environmental protection projects but could be described as water reallocation projects. So let's talk about the Delta Tunnels project and uh, the environmental consequences of that. So the, the idea of the Delta Tunnels Project, now recently being called um, Governor Brown's Water Fix, is to basically replumb the state water project. And instead of having water go through the Delta, as I described, as it comes from the north to the south, 
basically you would build tunnels that go um, around that area. And instead of releasing water into the Delta for then diversion in the pumping plants at the South of the Delta, you would never put that water in there. You would put the water amount uh, required for um, either water rights that are satisfied out of that area and also fish and other environmental uses and the rest of the water um, that, you know, is headed down south to agriculture and domestic uses would be sent through these tunnels. So the, the impact of that is to reduce the overall amount of water that runs through the delta. And many people feel this is going to cause a lot of problems um, for fish and wildlife because, you know, we're reducing the amount of water, um, which, A, reduces the amount of water. It will change the temperature of water. It will do a lot of things like that. But one of the most important things it will do is having less water there is likely to give a lesser barrier against um, saltwater intrusion. So the Delta is connected to the San Francisco Bay, which has been connected to the Pacific Ocean. So you get tidal action that brings the saltier water towards the Delta. And so right now there are requirements for water to be sent out into that area to kind of push back that saltwater barrier. So if we don't have as much water there, there's a chance we're going to get more saltwater intrusion. And again, that is likely to kill um, fish and make some of the wildlife habitat less hospitable for species there. And many people believe, you know, it is it is simply bad policy um, from an environmental standpoint. But there are also water users in the Delta who believe this is effectively a way to take some of their water rights away and give them fewer rights in favor of folks down in Southern California um, who will receive this water or folks in agricultural areas that are south of the Delta. It, and it doesn't seem like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. They've been trying to do this for a while. And uh, it's just seeming to be, there's a lot of volatility around the project currently. Yeah. Well, they, they basically did a tried a version of this in the early 80s, I believe, um, and ultimately, it was struck down by, I believe, voter initiative. So it's kind of um, resurrecting an old idea. And Governor Brown is certainly pushing hard. There is litigation challenging it. Um, just recently, um, a Southern California water district purchased land in the Delta that many believe will be used somehow to push the project forward or to make it easier to do the project. Um, and so there is a lot. There's a lot writing on it, a lot of people paying attention. Um, groups on all sides have issues with the, with the project. And so it's kind of interesting in that you have agriculture uniting with some environmental organizations, and they're all kind of opposed to it. Um, and then you have a bunch of water districts and ag on the other side who are for it. So it's made interesting bedfellows for sure. I think one of one of the major issues is that a lot of people, particularly in in urban areas, understand how bad uh, the crisis is and are trying to you know minimize their time in the shower and uh, how, look at how they're brushing their teeth and so forth. But residential use is so is such a small part. We're talking what five percent maybe of the total water use. And before we're saying how much agriculture is using, I believe they're using around 68%. That's not to say that farmers don't understand the tragedy and, and aren't actually the most affected by um, by the drought. But it unfortunately, it's not just a Californian uh, 
issue to solve because the farmers are also under the federal farm bill. Their incentives under the federal farm bill are ridiculous. For instance, if they grow cotton, which is an immense water sapper, they are bound to get paid whether from insurance from the federal government under the farm bill, whether their crop survives or not. If they go to another crop that might be less water intensive, they don't have that surety. And particularly, you know, when you have drought and soil that's becoming more salinated, you, you know, you might go for the, the safer fix. And they have also the use it or lose it. So if they use less water, you know, in the future, they might lose their water rights. In a way, California's hands are tied because you have all these federal government jurisdictional issues. And now there is a case, and this is a little bit different because it doesn't concern agriculture. It concerns bottling, but the Forestry Service is in charge of this because it's federal land. So Nestle has been taking millions of gallons of water for years and years from Strawberry Creek in the San Bernardino Valley and currently is in court. So three environmental NGOs have taken the Forestry Service to court to not reissue the permit to Nestle stating all manner of environmental consequences. They're saying that um, not only is Nestle doing this, but they've been doing it under an expired license and the license expired years and years ago. So what are the legal issues that we're facing in this litigation? So I will answer that question, but I want to back up to a comment you made about um, agriculture being subject to a, a lose it, use it or lose it policy. That is not strictly true because when you're dealing with surface water rights and they're a certain type of right, um, that can be true um, under a pre-1914 rights system. So these are the very old water rights. Um, when you have a permit or a license, that's not necessarily true. And many agricultural, much agricultural relies on these contracts, and literally they're a contractual obligation to water rather than a water right itself. And those are much more complicated, but they aren't subject to strict water right principles. And so that is, that is not necessarily the case. Um, and then with respect to groundwater, in the situation we're in now where we have no kind of formal regulatory system for what water is being used, people are relying more on groundwater pumping, as you noted, because the surface water supplies have dried up and are smaller or maybe in some cases aren't being received at all because there just simply isn't enough to meet all the allocations. And so those people are pumping water in order to meet their needs. Um, but the only time where the use it or lose it concept might actually be important in the groundwater context is if, and this is very legal, but I will mention it briefly, a groundwater adjudication is initiated by those users, which is to say someone goes to a court and says, I want to know what the number on my water right is, and I don't now because that's not how we do it here. And now I need to prove my water use historically and show my water use. And that is where the idea is if you didn't use it, you may have lost it comes into play. But that is a you know, legal proceeding that has to be initiated. There was some legislation passed not too long ago attempting to streamline those groundwater adjudication processes and make them dovetail more um, neatly with the Sigma groundwater legislation. So that is, federal farm bill aside, it's not necessarily the case that it's use it or lose it, but it is certainly the case that agriculture, when it can no longer reliably count on and surface water supplies is likely to switch to groundwater use 
and overuse that resource because there aren't really checks and balances and there's not a holistic approach being taken to understanding the long-term impacts to those basins in most instances. Now, Moving on to Nestle, yeah. unless you have a follow-up question on that. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's not as simple and appalling as a use-it-or-lose-it situation. However, we still need to tighten our regulatory framework. Now, as the drought continues, and no doubt it will continue for years, do you expect there'll be further restrictions on farmers, industry, and communities? Well, I, unfortunately, I don't think so. I mean, I think there was a lot of progress made when it felt very dire, and I think that after a, not a super wet winter, but a wetter winter than maybe expected, um, where our reservoirs in largely the northern part of the state, though not so much on the kind of central eastern side of the state, are at normal levels. They're at 100% of capacity or near there, or 100% of average rather. So it was a good year in some ways. And I think a lot of people said, you know, we need to learn to live within our means on our, in terms of our water budget. And all those new rules and regulations we impose, they need to remain in place because we need to change the way we live for our long-term sustainability. And I think we're seeing a step back from strict conservation. And um, in some ways, I think that's unfortunate because I do think that we need to rethink the way we use our water and the way we think about it and think of it as a um, non-renewable resource, because it is to some degree, and, and plan accordingly. Um, so I, I would say I actually don't expect the regulations to, to continue to ramp up um, unless the drought continues and is pretty bad. If we have another uh, year like we did this last winter, then I wouldn't expect there to be significant regulations. If we have a much drier winter, you may see more drastic regulations. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the success, frankly, of water conservation that happened gives me hope that people can learn to do it um, if the right sticks and carrots are, are in place. Um, and I I am someone who also tries to be water conscious, but there are people who are not. And it always surprises me um, that people aren't following the rules. And there are there were rules about when you water your lawns. Um, and they couldn't do it during the day, and then it was only one or two days a week, and some people followed them and some people didn't. I believe that even currently, you're not allowed to basically let water run off your property. That That's still not allowed. Um, so these are people who, you know, run their sprinkler for a long time or wash their car uh, with a hose. There's a lot of regulations. It doesn't mean people are following, but they are there. And that was a pretty dramatic set of conservation regulations that I think really surprised people, but it was really things were very dire and the state thought we've got to do something um, and crack down on all kinds of things. Like they could, they made HOAs unable to penalize homeowners who let their lawns go brown. They said, you can't, you know, kick them out or fine them for letting their lawns go brown. They're complying with the statewide conservation mandate. So we've made some progress, but I, I think there's been a little bit of backsliding on kind of institutionalizing conservation um, aware activities. Yeah, which, you know, is, is, is a problem because even if we have another good year, I mean, when we're talking about a good year, we're not talking about great years. We're just talking about years that if it went for a six-year drought, <laughs> they would be good years. But we need, you know, it's just not enough. It's not enough even if we have another good winter and um, 
and and snows. So I, I think that's something that it, there's misinformation happening where people think, oh, but it's you know it, we had we had a great uh, winter and we had rain and therefore you know we could be lax about the situation. I think we're talking about years of issues. And one other issue actually that we haven't discussed is that with increased salinity. I mean, of course, with increased salinity, you know, we have issues with soil fertility, which is a whole other issue, but um, we're more vulnerable to flooding. And after Mm -hmm. a massive drought, (laughs) as nature loves to breathe so capricious, she just changes her mind and then we have um, massive flooding. And with soil that's salinated, it really, it leads to massive flooding because it just can't handle the rains. So I wonder whether, you know, California is prepared for floods (laughs) and whether we're mitigating that in some way. So I actually grew up in an area of Northern California that is literally uh, surrounded on all sides by levees. The town I grew up in is in a triangle, um, and that is because there is flooding issues. And that's just under the natural system as it is now. Um, the state is aware that, that with climate change coming and the changes it's likely to bring to the weather patterns where you're going to get more of the water coming down um, in the form of rain rather than snowpack that, you know, melts and kind of comes in the, the months we expect it to. And they are thinking about um, having better and more reservoirs um, so that we have places to put water um, so we can control, you know, control flood flows. There is a lot of infrastructure in the state that uh, is intended to um, serve a flood control uh, function. Um, you know, money is always an issue. We we need to make sure our everything is kind of in tip top shape to protect uh, communities. And um, I don't know whether that's happening. I know that it's always on the mind, but I also know that flood control projects move very slowly. Um, because there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of stakeholders and they cost a lot. So, but, but it is there. People are thinking about it. I think it is part of the planning. I think local and regional um, water suppliers and flood control districts are trying to tackle those um, issues head on and, and, and think about them and plan for them. Um, It may not be moving at the pace it needs to be, but it it is, it is happening. Good. (laughs) At least it's on the table. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess at the moment with everything that's going on, that's um, maybe as much as we could ask for, uh, probably the first mitigation would be controlling our water use <laughs> and, uh, and then um, thinking of the floods that uh, might occur in the next few years. So let's go back to uh, the, I call it the Nestle litigation. Nestle is not actually named as a party uh, at all. It is the um, the Federal Forestry Service, uh, unfortunately, that's named as a party because uh, it's not like it has this massive budget and can handle um, <laughs> any adverse uh, decision against it, including um, the attorney fees claimed and so forth. However, I do find um, that it is quite reprehensible to have a profit-making venture by taking... Uh, water from um, <laughs> a resource that is being so depleted at the moment. So, so what are the legal issues that are prevalent in this litigation? 
So just to start off, I, um, the California Water Code says um, water is a, is a property of the public. So water is a, is a public resource. We think about it that way, even in water law. But what is different is that um, you can have a private property right to use the water and you can perfect that right in a way that makes it kind of more valid going into the future and, you know, it gains you seniority in some cases over subsequent users or other users of the water. So interesting thing about Nestle is the litigation challenging the Forest Service's um, inaction basically to review and kind of reissue its permit and conduct environmental review as part of that process really has to do with use of the pipelines and a catchment basins that are used there to um, capture and then move the water. And so that is in some ways um, an access issue, right? It's kind of like, can I use this pipeline to transfer water? Because the the basis of right under which Nestle claims its water right and the authority to take the water um, is under the pre-1914 appropriative system I described earlier. And this right is quite old. It, it actually stems from the um, mid-1800s. And so it is basically under the system where it was, if you, you if you use it, you gain thereby gain a claim to it. So the Forest Service has simply issued a special use permit allowing Nestle to have these basins and also this pipeline to take water from the water source, which it does under state law, and transport it to its bottling facility. And I, I don't know all the details, but I, I kind of have a high-level understanding of, of the legal issues. So the, the water right that Nestle claims was actually um, the subject of a state court um, groundwater, or, I'm sorry, water adjudication, um, I believe, or at least was confirmed by a court in the 30s. So there is really not a claim that they have an invalid right, I don't believe. I think recently the State Water Board followed up with Nestle and asked some questions to understand their basis of right. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the State Water Resource Control Board, because it is a pre-1914 right, did not issue a permit, and it does not have the jurisdiction um, to restrict the use of that water except to the extent that it's deemed to be um, an unreasonable use. So that is a place where one could argue, I think, that it is unreasonable to allow them to bottle water that might otherwise serve fish and wildlife or be used by a public water supplier. But from a strictly um, water rights perspective, they appear to be within their rights. So what this lawsuit does is basically says, Forest Service, you need to look at this, this access you're granting them um, and look at it in the greater scheme of things, when you grant them this access and therefore allow them to um, take this water and, and pipe it to their facility, you know, it's having ultimately an impact on the environment that's negative and it, you're looking at the watershed and saying, you know, you're letting them damage the public resource that is this national forest. So that is... That is, those are kind of two issues. You have the federal law issue about the access permit and the state law issue about water. They're challenging the federal law uh, issue about access. And I, I, it's interesting to see how that will play out. Um, it's kind of a backdoor way to challenge, in some ways, the water rights and whether it's harming in-stream beneficial uses. Um, another interesting point to note about this that I found in some research is 
the water right predates the national forest. So that is interesting. Um, so they were kind of, quote unquote, there first. Um, and that's one thing that they've, they've pointed out. So it'll be interesting to see what the Forest Service does and what it concludes and um, whether it chooses to reissue the license. My understanding under Forest Service regulations is that even though the, it, the license expired, um, I'm sorry, the special use permit expired, it kind of remains in effect until they take action, you know, terminating it. And so they're now in the process of figuring out if they're going to reissue it or terminate it. And uh, I, I don't know how that's going to come out. And in the meanwhile, they're conducting the environmental impact assessment. Correct. So because they're taking an action, they're doing um, their environmental re review under the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA, uh, where they look at all the different aspects and the potential impacts of um, the, ish the decision to issue the special use permit or reissue rather. Whatever the decision in this case, which concerns Nestle's Arrowhead brand, the public consensus seems to be changing and people are increasingly in favour of further restrictions on water use. As our water situation in California becomes increasingly dire, more people do not accept that a corporation should profit so much from a public resource, particularly when the resource is so fragile. We may see a public push to reform the law, new propositions that may put more restrictions on bottling or even ban bottling in California. For it is not only Nestle that is bottling in California during the drought, but other companies, including until recently Starbucks, which after a public push, moved their operations elsewhere in the United States. We may also see, and I hope we do see, a public push to curtail agricultural and industrial use as the drought escalates and communities are further impacted. Yeah, I think it will be interesting. I mean, some of the folks with more senior rights, like, like Nestle and even some agricultural operations, have very senior water rights and they have vested rights. And so I think that you are right that there could be a public push, but I, from a legal perspective, I wonder about um, how that will play out in terms of impairing vested rights and whether if they're basically taking the, this right, taking a water right, there is a term for that. Um, you know, basically it's the idea of kind of condemning a right. There is, um, monetary payments required. So if there is a way to change things that may require the state to pay money to folks to basically require them to, you know, cease doing what they're doing and, and, and take, and taking a portion of their water rights. So I understand wholly the reaction to, it seems wrong to me that there are communities in California that don't have access to water at all. Um, and then you can go buy a bottle of water at Starbucks. It is, it is, it feels strange to people to have a public resource kind of pulled out from under them. Um, and the legal system is set up to give people the right to use water and an appropriate right lesson to use water off of the land. Um, and that's what this is. So these people, so Nestle is exercising an appropriate right and you know, when you have tanker trucks of water going from um, someone's groundwater basin and they truck it down the road and they water their very expensive million-dollar lawns, which is a thing that happens, you know, that's also an appropriative groundwater wiping exercise. And it feels weird when you have poor communities that don't have access to water. And, you know, I think I like to think and I know that there are people working hard on these issues and trying to get some greater equality 
Um, and there's political battles to be fought and there's legal battles to be fought. And it would be great for everyone to have equal access to water. And um, there are some changes in the law. So there is a human right to water bill um, that was passed, signed into law in 2012. Uh, it's a really a policy statement, a declaration of policy, and uh, it has it imposes a duty for state agencies to consider um, that in, in planning decisions, but really doesn't have any hooks in private parties to kind of compel them to act in a way that would ensure water supply for um, disadvantaged communities. But it's a, it's a step in the right direction. Um, certainly, it is bringing to the forefront an important societal issue uh, about making sure everybody has access to this truly necessary resource. It's the most indispensable of human rights, necessary to our survival and therefore a prerequisite for the enjoyment of any other right. Without water, you cannot live, so you cannot have a right to life without the right to water. You cannot have the right to health without the right to water. As for the political and civil freedoms, what's the benefit of these rights without the ability to survive and enjoy them? What's the point of freedom of speech? You're going to be too parched to be able to speak. Right. As you mentioned before, the issue with Water Code 106.3 or the human right to water is that this legislation lacks teeth. It does not obligate the state to effectuate this right, nor does it provide the state with enforcement powers against private parties that may be violating people's rights. However, despite this, it is nevertheless a step in the right direction and hopefully in the future, hopefully in the near future, we will see a positive framework in which the state will be obligated to enforce this right substantively so that its people can effectuate that right. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Courtney. I really appreciate your insight as to the impact of the drought and the current state of water rights in California. Great. It was a pleasure talking to you. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.